Hey, y'all, Tyler McKenzie here from Northeast Christian Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast today. We hope that our messages are equipping you to unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere. If this podcast has impacted you at all, we would love to invite you to partner with us by giving to our Love the Ville outreach offering. I just remind you, 100% of that goes to serving the least and the lost in our community and around the world. This is what our church wants to be known for. So please prayerfully consider making a gift if we've blessed you at all. You can go to nechurch.org slash give for the details. And now we'll send you over to the podcast. Now we're in week five, as Tamar said, of our Christmas series that we've called Finding Peace in an Anxious World. Uh, And the short of it is this, we're not mentally well. You've seen the statistics, Uh, we're, we're not okay. There is a mental health epidemic happening right now in the United States of America. Can't argue with it. And it seems that the younger you are, the harder it hits. Anxiety, uh, depression, suicidal ideation, it's all really just heartbreaking. And the Christmas season, well, it can really do one of two things for you, right? It can be a season of healing because of who and what Christmas actually stands for, or it can just intensify all the anxiety and disillusionment that's already there. So as we've been saying from the beginning of the series, I'll say it again, say it again. Buying new things and wrapping them in fancy paper. Feasting on sugary treats, cards with glitter. All the sparkle and flash of the season, it's just treating the symptoms. You can wear uh, your ugly Christmas sweater. You can go ice skating. You can watch Buddy the Elf for the 10th time. You can put a Christmas tree in every room of your house and you know who you are. Some of you got like five or seven trees in your, just anyways, you know who you are. Uh, Elbow her. This is your moment, husband. You can do it all. But all that is just ornamentation if you're dead inside. At best, all the razzle and dazzle of December is a momentary escape until January hits and life comes rushing back in. The only thing that makes Christmas truly magical, the only thing, is if what we believe about Jesus is true. If the Son of God was born in Jesus and then whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, whoa, if that's true, then Merry Christmas. And maybe this season does have something to offer our anxious world. No, can I be honest with you? Um, 20 years ago, when uh, I was in high school, we were not talking about mental illness this much. Was that the case when you were a kid? It seems like a, a more recent phenomenon. Now we needed to talk about it more. Hear me out here. But I don't think we were struggling with it then at the same rates that we are today. It's at epidemic level now. So to be honest with you, the last few years of my life, I've just sort of struggled with these two tensions about how to approach mental health and mental illness. On the one side of the equation, I am 100% for the destigmatization of it, especially in church communities. We gotta help people get help. We need to understand our emotions and desires. We need to make sure we're not labeling mental illness as, as a product of having too little faith. Or, or shaming people 
because if that's not good, we gotta have a more nuanced conversation in the church. We need to be great here at supporting medical interventions and then offering spiritual interventions, which by the way is what this series is. It's a spiritual intervention for mental health. We gotta be good at that. But then on the other hand, on the flip side, I just thought to myself like, sheesh, this is so epidemic. Is this real? Is this real? Like it feels like, it just feels like we're having way more mental health issues nowadays. So like, what's going on? Are we just more aware of it? Or are there actual societal conditions right now that lead to greater levels of anxiety and depression and loneliness and suicidal ideation? Now I've done a lot of research on this. I'm not an expert. I've read the experts uh, though. And it seems like the answer to that is, is yes to both. Yes, we are more aware, but yes also there are specific societal conditions that are contributing to all this. That were not as pervasive years ago as they are today. So that's what this series is after. It's after spiritual solutions to the societal ills that are stealing our peace. So in week one, you all remember, we said uh, we need to choose hope over despair. It's key to finding peace in an anxious world. Week two, we talked about choosing confession over concealment. Key to finding peace in an anxious world. Perseverance over fragility. Local presence over omnipresence. That one is so huge in finding peace in our anxious world. And today, I want to talk about choosing doctrine over desire. Doctrine over desire, because I think this is a key to finding peace in an anxious world. Now, what does that mean, Tyler? Well, in street talk, uh, basically what I'm saying is, uh, is peace will be found when you allow God to direct your life. Oh, okay, yes. In the 9 a.m. service too. Did you notice earlier that she did the Love the Ville Christmas Eve party, which is literally like the coolest thing that we do all year for Love the Ville. And it was like, golf clap. And I'm back there like, y'all better wake up 9 a.m. Like that deserves more than a golf clap. That deserves a praise God. So yes, okay, thank you, Jeff. Um, in street talk, peace will be found when you allow God to direct your life. And on the flip side, anxiety is found when you allow your desires to direct your life. Now, I talk about this guy a lot, but it's because he's made some important observations about our culture. There's a Canadian philosopher uh, named Charles Taylor. And uh, he explains that our culture has shifted from what he calls an age of authority to an age of authenticity, from authority to authenticity. Follow me here. Uh, he points out that just about every culture in the history of civilization, period, uh, that has come before us actually looked to external sources of authority outside the self to help us figure out how to navigate life. So we would look to things like our family, uh, tradition, the government, societal norms. We'd especially look to our faith and its teachings, which is what we would call doctrine, to give us God's way of handling life. Basically, all the societies before ours thought, we don't have to figure out this hard thing called life by ourselves. We don't have to figure out how to build families or handle money or face suffering or process death or deal with relational conflict, like any hard thing in life. People before us have dealt with this. We don't have to do it all, our, all on our own. We actually have trusted external authorities and institutions that we can look to who can serve as our guides. 
That's the way it was, <laughs> but not so anymore. Today, we live in a culture that rejects external authorities. We just don't trust them. By the way, for good reason. A lot of our external authorities and institutions have let us down and it's been on the front page of the paper. So if we can't trust them, then well, who, who do we trust? Me. And we turn from external authority to internal authenticity as the most important thing for determining what's best in life. We let desire rather than doctrine guide us. Are you following my argument here? Now there's a couple problems with this. One big problem with this approach to life is that it's anti-wisdom. It's anti-wisdom. Yeah, it's basically a recipe for confusion, identity crises, and really just unnecessary mistakes. Traditions, families, religions, they actually contain the collective wisdom of our ancestors. Did you know that? From the grave, our ancestors are shouting, hey, we screwed this thing called life up and we got some advice for you. And if you'll just listen, maybe you can get it right the first time. But we put that on mute. It's also a recipe for, uh, let me throw the slide back up there, frayed community. A frayed community of lonely individualistic people. Almost every culture to come before us has stressed the importance of like negotiating your inner desires in a way that, that works for your community, that works for the common good of everyone. Like you can't just go and do whatever you want whenever you want all the time because other people exist and we gotta live together, you know? But our society ignores that. It says, first look inside of yourself, discover the authentic you, then next turn outward and demand that your community affirm it. So here's what we end up with. What we end up with is a bunch of people trying to form their identities by themselves and figure out life by themselves uh, without consulting the wisdom of the ages or working together. And no wonder we all feel confused, lonely, and lost. This is what happens when we enthrone desire over doctrine. That's my argument today. That's the argument. My argument is that the age of authenticity creates incredible friction with Orthodox Christianity because Christianity is not an inside out faith. Uh, we, we don't enthrone desire over doctrine. We bring our desires under doctrine. We have always said it in the Christian faith that our identity is found in Christ. Our purpose is found in the desires of our creator God. Our moral code is found in the sacred text inspired by the spirit. And so what do we do? We submit to these external authorities. We experience inner transformation because of that. And then we express that inner self out into the world. We call it resurrected life. This resurrected self out into the world as love, worship, and testimony to others. You see, we're an outside, inside out faith. Now, uh, Intro over. Let me, let me, let me read to you the, our passage for today because Jesus addresses this really, really, really clearly. Uh, actually, Tyler, throw up the five weeks slide again. Okay, I, I don't know if you've noticed over the course of the five weeks of this series, but we, all of our main passages have been out of John and that's been on purpose because when people ask me, uh, who is, who's Jesus? I'm like, don't ask me, find out for yourself and I like to point them to the gospel of John. It tells you amazing things about his identity and how it can bring peace into your world. And so that's what we've been doing this Christmas. It's just like, hey, just look to John, look to what Jesus said, look at how he presents Jesus and John. That's what we've been doing in this series. Uh, spoiler alert for Christmas Eve, I'm gonna hand out a gospel of John to everybody who walks in the room who wants one. So uh, we're hoping that the gospel of John will convert some hearts this Christmas season. So back to John here. 
We're going to be in John chapter 8 today and hit another uh, famous line from John uh, that Jesus gives us. And, and you'll recognize it. You'll recognize this is the second verse that I read. Starting in John chapter 8, verse uh, 30, uh, this is what John writes. John writes, uh, then many who heard Jesus say these things believed in him. So Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin a slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Now, Jesus makes three important points here. Three points that I wanna show you today. Uh, point number one is uh, he makes a statement about ultimate reality. Did you see it? I think you saw it. A second, he makes a claim to exclusivity and sufficiency in himself. And then third, he offers the audience an ultimatum between captivity or freedom. You get to choose. And ultimately, it all points us towards finding our peace in him. So let's start with number one, a statement about ultimate reality. Did you see the statement that he made? Uh, John chapter uh, eight, verse 32. Jesus says, the truth will set you free. Uh, repeat after me, say, the truth will set you free. <laughs> Who's heard this phrase before, right? Like you don't even have to be a Jesus. People will quote this phrase who are not Christians and uh, not realizing that they're actually quoting Jesus because it's such an iconic phrase. And the reason why this phrase is so iconic is because we know it's true. Just at a deep level, we know that the truth will set you free. It represents reality. It represents a reality that our lives either have to bend to or will be bent by. The truth will set you free or falsehood will put you in chains. Now, sometimes truth is music to our ears, isn't it? And sometimes truth is tough love. But no matter what it is, truth always sets you free. So, so let me say a little bit different. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says truth is good for you. It's good for you. And again, I would say that if you're not a Christian, even still, most people would agree with that. Truth's good for you. Where people begin to disagree is on this next question. But whose truth? Right? The truth will set you free, sure. But whose truth? The truth is good for you, sure. But whose truth is what is actually good for you? To which our culture then answers, your truth. Live your truth, girl. You do you. Follow your heart, bro. What you feel is who you are. That's what's good for you. Now, if you've been around here long, you know that I am constantly challenging these fad phrases because they sound good, but they are not reality. Let me say that again. They are not reality. The truth sets you free, not your truth. Now, just be clear, sidebar here. I'm, I'm not saying emotion is bad today. You understand that, right? The, the Bible, scripture itself canonizes 
some of the rawest expressions of emotion. Look at the Psalms. There are 150 prayers there, some of which are outbursts of irrational, violent, uncontrollable anger in the Bible. Some are suicidal laments of despair, and those are right next to the praise songs of thanksgiving. Look at the heroes of scripture. You see the whole gamut of emotion. You've got Moses' rage and Elijah's depression. Look at Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane. It says as he contemplates what he's about to face the next day, the cross, the burden of humanity's sin. It says that he had such an agony of spirit that he sweat blood. Okay, so Christianity has always seen the importance of like emotions, your heart and its loves. But we've also always said that God must be your first love. And the rest of our emotions, they shouldn't be ignored or suppressed. Rather, they should be examined and redirected in light of our first love. You see? So yeah, live your truth, girl. Terrible life advice. Yet we've just accepted it as common sense. Mounds of data prove these ideas are bad. Mounds of data prove that these ideas are, are underneath some of the great societal issues that we are facing right now, including mental illness. But they have been so normalized that if you push back on them too hard, you'll be disciplined. You'll be disciplined by HR. You'll be disciplined on social media. You'll be shamed out of the conversation as unenlightened. Uh, I've referenced this book a couple times in this series. It's, it's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's by social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist, uh, journalist Greg Lukianoff mega New York Times bestseller. In it, they actually argue that there are three great untruths that are wreaking havoc on society. And there are three specific criteria that they say make a great untruth. Let me remind you of the criteria. This is what makes a great untruth in their mind. One, it must contradict ancient wisdom, which means it runs against ancient philosophy and ancient religion, what they've collectively said. Two, a great untruth contradicts modern psychological research about human well-being. And then uh, three, uh, great untruth actually harms the individuals and the communities who embrace it. It basically leads to societal disintegration. Or in other words, a great untruth does not set you free. Now, do you remember what the three untruths were? We're gonna talk about another one of them today. Uh, the first one we talked about earlier this series, it's the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. This is the idea that we should shelter ourselves and our children from any risk, any adversity, any pain, any suffering. The second one is the untruth of us versus them. Life's a battle between good and evil people and we're the good guys, so let's cancel, let's destroy, let's deplatform, let's take out those bad guys. And remember, we're the good guys though. And then the third untruth is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. Never question them. The voice inside of you is the authentic you. So you aren't to adjust your feelings for the common good of your community. You are to trust your feelings at an identity level and then demand your community adjust to you. And by the way, anyone who stands in your way, they're an oppressor, they're infringing on, on your, your rights, whatever, and we know what to do with those people. Just reference great untruth number two. We cancel them because they're the bad guys. So this is what Lukianoff and Haidt write about, about the untruth of emotional reasoning. Uh, they say, uh, sages in many societies have converged on the insight that feelings are always compelling, for sure, but not always reliable. Often they distort reality, deprive us of insight, 
and needlessly damage our relationships. Happiness, maturity, and even enlightenment require rejecting the untruth of emotional reasoning and learning instead to question our feelings. The feelings themselves are real and sometimes they alert us to truths that our conscious mind has not noticed. That's an important insight. But sometimes they lead us astray. So back to it here. Live your truth, girl. Follow your heart, bro. They sound so 2023, don't they? But modern psychological research shows they're bad for you. They're bad for your communities. Truth sets you free, and some truths are more true than others. Now, we actually saw this play out recently in the Ivy League, didn't we? Probably saw it on the news. Uh, the presidents of Harvard, uh, Pennsylvania, and MIT, which is not an Ivy, but they, they were grilled uh, before Congress. Did you see this on the news? They were grilled before Congress um, over anti-Semitism on campus. Interesting story. Um, basically, with the war between uh, Israel and the Palestinians, there were lots of pro-Palestinian supporters on their campuses. And by the way, we should listen to those people. Hamas is bad. But Israel ain't perfect. You know that, right? The, remember, we talked about this in week one of the series. The line of good and evil cuts through the human heart. Every human heart, right? So we gotta be careful of like great untruth number two, caricaturing an entire group of people as terrorists just because they're not allies with our country. Gotta be careful of that. No doubt about it. But back to the colleges. In some of these protests, the students went too far and it, and it and it seemed to devolve away from being sympathetic to Palestinians to actually being anti-Semitic towards Israel and towards Jews. So these presidents were called before Congress and, uh, and they were asked if, uh, if calling for the genocide of Jews violated their university rules. And uh, they sidestepped the question, what seemed like a pretty easy question. The president from Penn's response kind of summarizes it all. She said to Congress, it's a context-dependent decision. Uh, Harvard and MIT's presidents basically gave similar responses, and it all seemed kind of political. And uh, the public blew up, of course, they blew up because, you know, it should be easy to just say anti-Semitism and genocide is always bad. Now, in response to this, the president of Penn got fired. The Harvard president did not though. And to her credit, she made a really, really solid public apology. She said, you know, I'm sorry, words matter, condemned anti-Semitic violence. I have no doubt by the way she means that. And she meant that from the start. But she went on to say something in her apology that I think captures the unreality of our time. In her apology, this is what she said. She said, substantively in front of Congress, I failed to convey what is my truth my truth. And when I read that, I thought to myself, you're missing the point. Qdoba over Chipotle, okay, that's your truth. <laughs> Hallmark movies are good, fine, that's your truth. Your distorted version of the truth, but okay. But, <laughs> but here's the, the point. Some things are bigger than my truth versus your truth, like the genocide of Jews or any group. Not everything can just be authorized underneath the category of it's my truth. So back to our first point here, let me summarize what I've said this far. Jesus makes a statement about ultimate reality here, doesn't he? He says, the truth will set you free. Or in other words, the truth is good for you. 
And that's why we must acknowledge that my truth is not always the truth. Not all truth claims are created equal. So then the next question becomes, whose truth then, Tyler? Whose truth is the best truth? To which Jesus says the following. He says, my truth's the best truth. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to whose teachings? Whose teachings are you reading? My teachings, right? My teachings, this is Jesus. And he says, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. So Jesus draws an undeniable line between his teachings and the truth that will set you free. Uh, in fact, throughout the gospel of John, Jesus makes multiple claims to exclusivity and sufficiency when it comes to the truth and salvation. His truth is the truth. It's absolute and adequate. That's Jesus's opinion on himself. Now, it's interesting, when you read the New Testament, if, if you're to ask yourself, like I guess post the gospels, what are the top problems that the early church is dealing with? Um, I think it would be the following three issues. Post-Gospels, this is what you see the, the early church wrestling over. One is multi-ethnic unity. Can we get the Jews and Gentiles to worship and eat together? Relevant? Yep, still relevant. Two is perseverance in the face of suffering and, uh, and persecution. Relevant? Yep, still relevant. And three is false teaching or false doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. And is that relevant? Yes, of course, it's still relevant. That's what we're talking about today. Now, uh, why does having correct doctrine matter, though? Why does it matter so much? Tyler, why don't you just let people believe whatever they want to believe? Well, for what it's worth, you live in the United States. You can believe whatever you want to be, believe. I'm not stopping you. But we've already talked about this. When we live out untruths as if they're actual truths, we're living in a reality that doesn't exist. And that harms us. If truth sets you free, then falsehood enslaves you. It puts you in chains. Have you ever read Judges before? Interesting little Bible book. Most rated R book in the Bible. I mean, people are getting dismembered. Anyways, it's just complete and total cultural and moral chaos. Not a good bedtime story for the kids. Stay in Genesis. No, just go to Jesus with the kids, all right? Now, in the last verse of the book of Judges, the author of Judges actually summarizes the cultural mantra that they had back then that destroyed them. Judges 21, verse 25, this is what the author says in a sentence. He says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And guess what? When people do whatever they think is right in their own eyes, bad stuff happens. That's the moral of Judges. Now, the biblical perspective is that God is our creator. God's our designer and he's good. He has a vision uh, that, for, for how he wants this, this thing called life to work. And so in order to flourish in life, we look to his doctrine, his teachings, and doctrine actually explains to the church the way and the will of God, our creator and designer. So it makes doctrine good. And in this passage, Jesus makes the radical claim that his teaching is that. It's the way and will of God. His teachings actually what we're designed for. 
you know, the consistent witness of the, the New Testament is that false teachings are what put people in chains. And that is why Jesus and the apostles consistently defended the exclusivity and sufficiency of Jesus. They didn't do it because they were like close-minded, intolerant, know-it-all bigots. They did it because they loved people. Now, the, the exclusivity of Jesus is just not, um, you can't say that. You can't, it offends modern culture, doesn't it? It offends people. Uh, people uh, today think it's immoral to say that you have the truth, and it's even worse to say that others don't. You just can't say things like that anymore. You can't love someone and disagree with them, can you? Uh, you aren't supposed to hold your beliefs with confidence ever. Like if you make an absolute truth claim, uh, then you're close-minded, you're self-righteous, and you're a jerk. But do you see the hypocrisy here, by the way? Doesn't it make you a close-minded, self-righteous jerk if you make the absolute truth claim that you can't make absolute truth claims? Okay, anyways. So like the majority of, of young Americans today, um, they actually believe that all religions are basically the same. Share the same core truths, lead to the same God, basically the same thing. But have you ever considered how close-minded and arrogant that sounds to like, let's say a devout Buddhist who doesn't believe in a personal God like we do? Or uh, have, you ever, have you ever considered how, how self-righteous and know-it-all that seems to a devout Muslim who thinks that uh, Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad was the last and final witness to Allah? Go ahead, go and tell them, you know, it's all the same. Don't worry, just chill, you know. Doesn't really matter which God. And you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna call you arrogant. Like talk about an ugly sort of modern Western supremacy. Because you can't handle disagreement with others, you're gonna colonize the rest of the world with your moral maps and your religious vision, all while shouting down anybody who disagrees with you as closed-minded. Like deep down, we all know that we we all can't be right. Deep down, we all know that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Okay, you don't believe me? Um, I'm gonna give you an actual experiment that you can do today after church. You know Brownsboro Road right here, right in front of the church? And you know how it comes in uh, connection with Chamberlain right here at this light? Okay, so there's two lanes that come in connection with Chamberlain and this light. But, at, but right when you get through the light, what happens to the two lanes? Well, you're going to Oldham County. They merge into one lane, right? As soon as you get through the intersection, they merge into one. Experiment for you today, okay? If there's a big, big long line in the left lane, I want you to pull up all the way to the front in the right lane. And then I want you to try to cut. And here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find that three out of four of your neighbors will go bumper to bumper like they're in a NASCAR race to make sure, you, including me, to make sure that you can't get in. And the one out of four people who will let you in are either my wife, stop it, Tyler, it's not worth it, or, or somebody who was Timmy texting and, and they just let the texture gap. You know the texture gap? <laughs> Some of you look for it. You rely on the texture gap. I'm for real. Go for, roll down your window at the light and say, hey, when, when it gets to green, friend, I'm just gonna cut. Just doing my truth, bro. Oh, wait, what, excuse me? You're not gonna let me in? How arrogant of you to impose the colonizing architecture of East Louisville traffic etiquette on me. My truth is that I am in first in line. I refuse your cultural categories. Hmm. You know what they're gonna do? They're gonna beep at you and then not let you in. Because there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is truth. 
Uh, I heard one pastor put it like this once. He said, if all truth's equally valid, why do we even bother to reform society? You got MLK who stands up and says, I have a dream to which we have to say, who cares? I do too. Why does your dream get to dictate the future? You see, there is such a thing as truth. So you know what we need? We need a truth that transcends culture. We need a doctrine that's wiser than our own designs. We need teachings that are more stable than our feelings. We need a curriculum more time-tested than our desires. We need something or better, someone outside of our flawed selves that can stoop down and set us free. And Jesus stoops down and says, Merry Christmas. I can do that. But it's up to you to choose me which is point number three. Do you see it in the passage? Jesus gives us an ultimatum between captivity and freedom. He says, only the son can, can set you truly free. John 8, we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean uh, you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son's part of the family forever. So if the sun sets you free, you are truly free. Uh, now look, uh, my observation is, is that, that people do care about the truth. They do. Uh, deep down, we all know there's such a thing as truth. I think the holdup for our generation right now is, but can I trust you? Because we've been given so many reasons not to trust power, right? So can I trust you? Is your truth good? Does it have real power? Will it change me? Can it make my life better? Can it make me better? Can it make the world better? And here's what Jesus says in the gospel of John. He says, come and see. Did you know that that phrase right there, it was actually the first thing he said to his first disciples in the gospel of John? They're like, what are you about? What are you about, man? He's like, come and see, come and see. And he invites you today to choose his way over your way, just like he did them 2,000 years ago, one step at a time. Just come and see. Now, I'll go ahead and warn you, his truth is not easy. Count the cost, fam. His truth will not enable you. It will actually call you to deny some of your strongest desires. And you won't like that. But remember, it's true. It's true. Did you know that fulfilling your loudest desires in the moment doesn't always lead to a better life? That sexual promiscuity now doesn't lead to long-term satisfaction in your marriage. A sugar binge now doesn't lead to a long-lasting life or a healthy body. Vengeance now doesn't actually lead to societal peace. Rage now doesn't lead to reconciliation and healing. Purchasing more stuff now doesn't lead to more contentment later, does it? Your loudest desires often lie. Your strongest desires aren't always your innermost desires, you see? And what Jesus says is, I can lead you to your innermost desires because I'll lead you along the way of the cross. It is cross-shaped love that sets you free from sin. It is cross-shaped love that sets you free to do good in the world. But I've got to lead, Jesus says. So, hey, uh, 
You want to throw the baptism slide up there? We got to talk about it again. Before the new year, before the new year this year, in two weeks, in two weeks, Jesus can heal what might take you two decades of therapy and life coaching and self-discipline and self-help technique to fix on your own. I'm telling you, just come and see. I want to urge you, if you're like under the age of 30 in here, young people, hear me. Do not waste your youth trying to find yourself and live your truth. You could thrive now. You can start living who you are designed to be right now. You don't have to follow the coming of age script where you screw around and stack up a bunch of regrets before you figure things out. You can get it right the first time. Give Jesus your life. Just say, uh, Jesus, yeah. Say to him today, Jesus, your teachings are true and I'm ready to be set free. Jesus, this isn't like a peppy New Year's resolution that I'm gonna drop week two of the new year. No, this is the moment in my story where I'm deciding to be a follower. So we've been saying it every week of this series, that this, this Christmas, we're pushing people who've never made the decision to be baptized to make that decision. On December 31st, at midnight in this room, you don't have to get baptized on midnight, by the way, if you got plans, fine. Okay, you have friends, good for you, all right? Um, Jesus is my friend though, so I'll be in his house on New Year's and uh, I'm just, <laughs> no, look, look, December 31st at midnight, we're gonna have the baptistry ready. And we've already got, I think somewhere around close to 20 people who are gonna be here and wanna get baptized. Many others who are gonna get baptized out the service, but I'm just encouraging you, if this is your moment, make it your moment. Receive the greatest gift ever, the freedom of Christ. Give Jesus the only birthday present that he actually wants this year, your heart. It's extraordinary to entrust yourself into the hands of a God who created you, who knows you better than you know you, loves you more than you love you, and can set you free. Did you see what the, the, the Jewish audience said, by the way, to Jesus in the passage? It's funny. Uh, they said, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll set us free? Jesus. And it always blows my mind when I read that passage because I'm like, what? How was his audience under the illusion that they were free? Like slavery was one of the defining marks of Israelite history. It started with the Exodus. They had a little stint where they did the whole kingdom building thing. And then before you know it, by the eighth century, they were in captivity, sixth century captivity from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, to you know, the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. The audience that Jesus was speaking to was literally under Roman captivity at that moment. And then Jesus is like, and by the way, there's an even greater oppressor than Rome, sin, your sin. How could they ever be under the illusion that they were free? But that's many of us, isn't it? You have become so used to living under the captivity of falsehood that you don't even know how much better your life could be under the Lordship of Jesus. You've accepted something less than best. You're pretending, you're pretending to be free. Don't you know that? If we check your life out on the gram, looks good, Insta-worthy life, all the ornaments are up. This Christmas looks super merry, doesn't it? But inside, you're in chains. And you and I know those chains are heavy and you need deliverance. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, free indeed. So this Christmas, I'm gonna encourage you, come and see.